will of God. We're going to talk about the will of God. Romans 12, 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I think we all want to walk in the will of God, right? But I want you to consider this. I don't believe that it's some elusive thing that you can't attain. It's not something external to yourself. But it's something that is within you. It's, uh, there's many scriptures, and we're going to go through a few of them just to kind of help us shift our mindset about what the will of God is. Mark 3.35 says, For whosoever shall do the will of God... The same as my brother and my sister and my mother. My husband talked about that yesterday so beautifully. We're, we're Jesus' brother. We're, God is our father. We're brothers and sisters because we do the will of God. That doesn't mean that we chose the right path. It means that what we do, how we act, is in accordance with the will of God. Romans 15.32 says that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God. And may with you be refreshed. So the will, the will of God can be joyful and refreshing. Galatians 1.4. Who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil war, world according to the will of God and our Father. So it can mean sacrifice. The will of God might mean sacrifice. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. For this is the will of God. That's pretty plain. Even your sanctification that ye should abstain from fornication. That's the will of God. Abstaining from some stuff. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So being thankful is the will of God. If you're thankful, you're doing the will of God. Um, Hebrews 10.36. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. I love this one because it proves to me that the will of God's not some formula that's going to lead me down a rainbow to a pot of gold. Even after I've done the will of God, I need patience until the promises come to pass. 1 Peter 2.15 For so is the will of God that... With well-doing, ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So doing well, that's the will of God, and it puts to silence ignorant men, foolish men. First Peter 3.17 For it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing rather than for evil. The will of God might mean suffering. We don't think that. We think that if we're in the will of God, everything's going to be, you know, hunky-dory, but it may mean suffering. 1 John 2, 17. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Absolutely not going to be some path that we happen to find or choose that, that, that leads us, but doing the will of God, listening to his voice, hearing what he says, studying his word. That's gonna, that is what is going to lead us into life everlasting. So the will of God is less about what direction you go 
and more about how you live. Now, let me qualify that because there's times in our life when we're trying to choose which way to take, meaning we're seeking the path God would have us, understanding that we're not trying to choose between a godly path and an ungodly path, right? It's never the will of God for you to choose a path that is that's after the flesh, that's not godly. But when we're trying to make a decision, um, sometimes we get in this trap of believing that there's one perfect way to go, and if we don't find that one perfect way, then we're missing it. And so we, we stagnate. We, we just don't even try because, I mean, what if we choose wrong? What if we get it wrong, you know? Is that my phone? Okay. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. Oh, you have to speak tonight, right about now. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the will of God is not so much tied up in the direction you take it is as it is in who you are. Because if you know who you are, if you know that you know that you know, you will walk with God in his will. Many of you are in the will of God, but because, you're, because your mindset is such that you think it's some intangible place where all your dreams come true, that you don't rejoice in this walking in the will of God. You're not able to rejoice in it because it does, it does, sometimes it doesn't feel good. Sometimes it's not great. And, and it's easier just to say, oh, I must be out of the will of God than it is to work on yourself. None of the, these ideas that, that the will of God is a, you know, perfect place and you just find it and you're going to be, you know, doing perfectly and life is going to be all butterflies and, you know, it's just, it's just not biblical. The will of God is a mixed bag of emotions, sacrifices, blessings, endurance, laboring, joy, so stop making it some kind of inaccessible, intangible idea that if only you could get there, you'd be doing the will of God. Uh, when we were first called, felt the call to evangelize, we had three kids, um, two girls and a boy, eight years old, six years old, three years old. And we, you know, we spoke to our elders, we talked to people that we trusted, and none of them really felt like it was a good idea. <laughs> traveling with three kids I mean they didn't think it was they weren't they were not saying oh no you don't have anything to give ministry wise they were just saying you got three kids you know maybe you should consider a different ministry path and um, then then God did something unexpected as God often does and I found out I was expecting our fourth <laughs> so long story short before God could give us any more kids we decided to evangelize <laughs> So just as soon as Judah was born, our youngest, um, just within a couple of months, we sold everything we had and hit the road with four kids now in a car uh, traveling down the path, down the will of God. And four short months into this journey, um, we got a call that my dad was passing. He had been sick for some time with a brain disorder called PSP. It's a palsy. And he knew from the beginning that his prognosis was death he knew that he knew eventually he would not be able to swallow and so he made decisions in the beginning that kept us from having to make those hard decisions and 
he was a Presbyterian minister. I was raised in a Presbyterian minister's home. Um, and through this sickness, I, this is the beautiful part of this. So I'll tell the beautiful part first and then the tough part <laughs> after that. The beautiful part was in this sickness, he couldn't, he couldn't uh, always get words out. He, he moaned a lot. He wanted to speak, but he couldn't form the words. Um, he couldn't tell you what he wanted for dinner. He couldn't tell you he wanted to get up. I mean, it was just, he couldn't say anything. But somehow in the midst of that, he formed a sentence to my sister and said, your pastor has a word for me. Right? I mean, he couldn't say anything, but he said that to my sister. So, of course, my sister called up her pastor, and he came over and explained to my dad the difference between the gift of the Holy Ghost and the gift of tongues being two different Greek words, which my dad um, was a missionary in Mexico and taught Greek in Spanish, so he knew Greek. So it just was like a light bulb went off. And that night when he went to church, again, he couldn't stand. He was in a wheelchair. But that night, he walked down to the front of the altar, and they put him in a chair, and he received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Jesus. Beautiful, beautiful. That's after years of praying for my dad. We were probably uh, praying for him for about 18 years, so that was just a beautiful. And then a few months later, he's in the nursing home, and my sister um, talked to him, and he said he wanted to be baptized, so we baptized him in Jesus' name. Uh, just a beautiful, beautiful thing. So this was after that, maybe a few months after that, and we got the call that he uh, was at the end. Before he ever got the Holy Ghost, though, before he could, lost his voice, he told me, he said, if suffering makes me more like Christ, then that's what I want. He would always quote the scripture, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He was a good man of God. And we were traveling then when I got the call that dad was passing in Wisconsin, um, and, of course, we had four kids in a car, and we had a lot to get ready to make the trip down so we could say goodbye to my dad. So we did a wash all day, tried to tie up loose ends, packed our suitcases, getting ready to leave. And about uh, sometime after midnight, I jumped in the shower so that we could uh, sleep for a little bit and get ready to leave in the morning. And I heard the phone ring when I was in the bathroom. I heard the phone ring, and I, I thought, oh, man, I miss, you know. My dad's passed a while with a phone ring in our hotel room in the middle of the night. Um, and so when I got out of the shower, unfortunately, my husband had to share with me that my brother, oldest brother, his name was Dick, was driving down to Quitman from his home in Decatur with his wife and baby, and the baby slept better, traveled better if he was asleep. So they were driving down at night, and my brother fell asleep at the wheel and ran under the back of a semi and was instantly killed. I was devastated. Um, my dad lived for 11 more days, and then we had double funerals. Now, I would love to tell you that I understood that. <laughs> I would love to tell you that it was evident to me that God's hand was with me. I was not okay. I did not feel that. I'm embarrassed to tell you that it took me two years before I could say to the Lord, I love you. I was angry. I was upset. We never stopped traveling. We never stopped preaching. We never, I never stopped praying. I never stopped praising. But I was so broken and confused. I was so angry. I, you know, I know all the steps of grief, but this was something else. This was, uh, not, it was grief for sure. But if we had said, 
you know what? We missed the will of God. They were right. We shouldn't be traveling. What, what, a, what a shame that would have been. But this is where God taught me that the will of God didn't have anything to do with the circumstances that I walked through, but how I learned, how I changed, how I became who he wanted me to be in the midst of those circumstances. I learned that this will of God was not some decision we made to evangelize, evangelize or pursue ministry, but the will of God was how I walked through that hurt. It's how I transformed, how God transformed my thinking. It's how he helped me and taught me and showed me things about myself that needed worked on and, and helped me solidify so that I know that I know that I know. That it was the process of God. It, it would have happened whether or not we had chosen that path. Romans 12, 2 tells us that the way that we prove what is the will of God, the way that we know that we are in the will of God is being transformed. And that will ultimately prove that you are doing the will of God. So in order to be transformed, we must make sure, first of all, the Bible says that we're not being conformed to this world. Conformity has become an aggressive adversary of the church. Social media world, the pressure to conform is so strong. There's some agendas that if you post, uh, um, you get bashed. And if you don't post, then you're automatically labeled something else. I mean, it's just very difficult, very difficult to navigate. So no matter um, what stance you have, it's, it's not received until we completely conform to whatever ideology they have. I want to show you a little bit of a difference here. I think this is so cool. Um, there's two, two times in the scripture the word conformed is used. One that we're talking about, be not conformed to this world. And then another one in Romans 8, verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, being conformed to the image of Jesus is in stark contrast to being conformed to the world, right? But the cool thing about this is these are actually two different Greek words. Um, e both, each one of the words is derived from two roots, and the first root word of both of them means the same thing. It means union. But the distinction comes when you talk about what you conform to. Because conforming to Christ brings with it a transformation or a metamorphosis. Conforming to the world brings with it only a sense of fitting in without real substance. I kind of see it like this. You take a piece of clay and you put it in a mold that looks like an apple. This is conforming to the world, right? You put it in a mold that looks like an apple. You take it out. You can paint that thing. You can make it look just like an apple where someone would think, oh, I'm going to go take a bite of that and come to find out it's clay. It's not real. But transforming, conforming to the image of Christ, when you transform, you metamorphose. It's like the clay becomes the apple. It's a totally different thing. You weren't created to fit into this world's systems. God made you in his image to be everything he can. Everything the Father is is what we can have. You're selling yourself so short if you think that conforming to anything else has value. I'm a first-generation apostolic, and I like to tell people I was raised by hippies. I mean, there's a lot of truth to it, you know, 
they definitely were raised in the hippie generation, and they had bought into a lot of that ideology. You know, uh, they were dissenters, protesters, rebels, renegades, free thinkers, apostates, heretics, individualists, free spirits, mavericks, unorthodox, eccentric, deviant, misfit, hippies, dropouts, fish out of water, outsiders, freaks, oddballs, odd fish, weirdos, weirdies, screwballs, kooks, wackadoos, and wackadoodles. <laughs> Those are all the synonyms, in case you want to know. <laughs> so when you choose to be a nonconformist, make no mistake. You're not just nonconforming, but you're also choosing to conform to something. We're all conforming to something. Uh, hippies are not conforming. We're not conforming. They felt like they were being nonconformist to the ideologies of past generations, but they were just creating a new set of things to conform to. In today's standards, we're the nonconformists. We're the renegades, the misfits, the oddballs, the weirdos and wackadoodles. <laughs> because we're not conforming to this world or this world's systems. It's all about knowing who you are and whose you are and who gets to set the standards for your conforming. In Romans, it tells us not just to be not conformed, but it goes on to say, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it's not just enough to not conform. It's not just enough to fit into a church culture. It's not enough. You have to fit into this conforming of Christ. Being transformed causes you to reconcile things in yourself. That's what God did for me in the midst of all that grief and heartache. He made me come face to face with some things about myself that were not, not aligned with his word and not aligned with his spirit. And when I came face to face with that in the word of God, it renewed me, it changed me, it transformed me. And now I don't, uh, I don't have that struggle in me that I used to have. Being transformed is wholly and completely personal. It's private. It's going to be different for each person. Um, sometimes I think we think that conforming and transforming are the same thing. But there's pressure even in the church to conform, to be like someone else, right? To be like elders or people that we esteem. Um, you know, we say, oh, I just I want to be like so-and-so, and we set ourselves up for disappointment because we're not them. Um, you know, Sister Switzer, I love her so much. She's a, so my husband used to, tell, used to tell this joke. He stopped telling it for my sake, and I'm so thankful. How that Google is a woman, right? You know Google's a woman because she knows everything. And he, tells, he told that joke here, and I was sitting by sis, beside Sister Switzer, and when he said the punchline, because women know everything, she said, you got that right. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. I'd love to have that quick wit and be able to think of those things, you know, so, or, or to be like Sister Dory, to have that grace and kindness that just oozes. I mean, I, you know, I could spend all my time trying to be somebody else. I mean, you don't want a female version of Tim Green. That just sounds wrong. <laughs> so we can't beat ourselves up for not being someone else. You don't want me to be Tim Green or Sister Switzer or Dory Sabolchi. You want me to be who God told me to be. 
God has a place for each and every one of you. You can, you can see traits in other people and desire that, but, you know, you got to be willing to walk the walk, you know, for the things that you desire. Um, so the church that I attend when I'm at home is called Branches Church. Uh, Lane and Shelley Kuhn are the pastors. Uh, do y'all know Shelley Kuhn? Do y'all know the goodness margin? Does anybody know that? No, not very many. Okay. Well, what it is is she has this uh, blog Instagram, social media presence about decluttering your life. And I've met so many people across the nation that said, oh, Shelly, I love her, but I could never do that. Because she's literally a minimalist. I, I can't even tell you. I went to her kitchen one time and opened the cabinet to get a coffee cup, and there's like five coffee cups in the whole cabinet. I'm just like, what's going on? <laughs> Are you Okay. But she does it for the purpose of decluttering so that she can have margin. That's why it's called the goodness margin. For the good things, margin in her life, which is amazing. But so many people, because they know they can't measure up to that, they don't even look at it. They don't even try to take anything from it because they're so uh, fearful of not being her, not measuring up. So I want you to turn to someone close to you and release them. Tell them God made you who you are. Don't try to be anybody else. <laughs> in Acts 12, Peter says that Peter, after he was in prison and, and he was delivered, it says he was delivered from the expectation of the people. And I'm kind of taking this a little bit out of context, but I love that phrase. I want to be delivered from the expectation of the people because then I'm just free to be who I am in Christ. I don't have to live up to someone else's expectations. I know I'm sure I lack and I fail people all the time. I'm sure that people think I am something that I'm not at times, but that's okay because I am sure of the things that I do know. Man, I love that message Sunday morning. I'll, I'll probably never get over that. I know that I know that I know. So transformation happens first in the mind, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word renewing means restoration or renovation. Um, when we're born again, we're new creatures in Christ, right? But, you know, new things become old and they need to be restored. And every time we get restored, we're like new again. But it's a process. It's a process. My husband and I are slow slow house flippers. Um, so we purchase a house that needs a repair or is old and needs renovating, and we live in it. Um, and I know that's not for everybody. Because when you do that, you're constantly in renovation. Some, some room of your house is constantly torn apart. You know, sheetrock dust is everywhere. Sometimes you have to wash your dishes in the bathtub. and <laughs> Sometimes you have to sleep under exposed ductwork or, you know, attics that you don't really want to see or even know what's up there. Um, so I know that restoration like that is not for everybody. I get that. But understand this, that in our minds, when God is transforming us, when God is renewing us, restoring us, that's what it looks like. It's just a mess. It's just a mess in your mind and in your spirit. There's family struggles, there's generational curses, bad choices, trauma, sheetrock dust of bad advice is on everything. 
the list goes on and on. But in order to walk in the will of God, you've got to let that process happen. You've got to let God tear down the things that are misaligned with his word. And when, what, I, what I learned through the process of, of those two years after my dad and my brother died is that I had my family out of priority. I, I, you know, I've, it's hard to hear that you could love your family too much, you know, how is that even a thing? But if I was, I was putting my love for my brother and my father above my love for God. I really was. I was saying, God, I care more about them not being here with me than I care about what you want for me, what, how you want to do this. So, when it, so that process was, it was hard. It took two years. God dismantled things bit by bit, you know, took the tile off the wall and that was What's that color pink that we have in there from the 60s, you know, that pink and green? You know, took those, took, he had to take that apart bit by bit and put it back together. But that's what renewing is. That's what God does for us. And, yes, it's a mess. Yes, it's a process. Sometimes it takes years. But we have to learn how to trust that process of renovation and know that there's good news. Because once I dealt with that, I'm not saying I'm perfect in that area for sure, but now I have a much better view of family. Um, I, I know that, um, never mind. So, <laughs> so the good news is this, that once you've dealt with your stuff, you're no longer just not conforming. Now you're transformed. You're renovated. You're like new again. And my favorite uh, thing about this is God always gives us a process. He always shows us the way. He never just says, oh, yeah, do that, but I'm not going to tell you how. <laughs> I mean, that's not who, he doesn't set us up for failure. The word of God doesn't set us up for failure. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. This is, this is the verse preceding what we've been talking about. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And then it goes on. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. So this is the process. You present yourself. You, just what the whole service said. We give it all. You come to him. You lay down everything. You present your whole self even the parts that are struggling, even the parts that aren't lined up with his word yet, even the parts that are, that are off, you bring it all and present it to God. It's so much easier to just go through a facade and say the words and move on, you know, say your prayers, oh, you know, your daily prayer, the Lord's prayer, say it, and then just go on about your business. It's much harder to look at yourself in the word of God. It's much harder to lay it all down and let God decide how I should behave. God gets to decide what's proper behavior and what's not proper behavior. God gets to decide what standards I conform to. God gets to choose those things, and there's such a um, crushing pressure in this world that everybody should have their own truth and figure out their own way and do it their way, and your way's not going to be like everybody else's way, but there is a way that seems right unto a man, 
and the ways thereof are death. So it, it is incumbent upon us to know the word of God. To know what God says we need to think, what we need to feel, how we need to respond. This is the renovation process. This is the renewing process. We bring him what we've got, and it's a mess. And he's, he says, let me help you there. And he'll, you know, he'll guide us and lead us. And, and when we do that, that's being in the will of God. That's the will of God. And I, I just want to encourage you tonight. I want you to let some of that weight lift off of you. That The enemy's been trying to tell you, well, you're, you're missing it because you're not in his will. If you're walking with God, if you're doing everything you know and presenting yourself a living sacrifice, you're in the will of God. That's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And so tonight, if, you, if everybody will stand, we're going to just do that tonight. We're going to take some time, Pastor Sabolchi, to be in this moment, to be right here in this moment. We've all come out tonight. We've all made the sacrifice in the rain and storm. We're going to take this time right here to present ourselves. The altar is such a perfect place for this, to bring yourself a living sacrifice. Surrender your will to his. The altar is a place where God's going to meet you. And he's going to do his process of renovation. All we have to do is present ourselves and lay it down. It might be hard to do that. It might be joyful for you to do that. It might be refreshing. It might take sacrifice. For sure, it'll take surrender. It might be that you need to abstain from some things and be thankful. It might mean that you suffer, but you've got to bring your stuff and then let God do his stuff. That's the will of God. So if, if we could just all gather tonight in the altar, presenting ourselves wholly to you, God, we don't, we don't have to find some elusive path that we're never going to find to be in your will. But we know, God, that if we do your will, if we love you and keep your commandments, that is your will. If we bring ourselves, present ourselves to you, a living sacrifice, every part of me, God, is open to you. I withhold nothing. I withhold nothing from you. I give it all. Because you are able, Lord, to renovate my mind. God, if there's nothing that I see right now that needs renovation, let me rejoice in the fact that you have transformed me, that you are transforming me. God, that you have brought me out of darkness and into marvelous light, and I have this light within me. Let your spirit move in this altar tonight, God.